So with that in mind, I'll read the first seven verses of Psalm 33. Then we'll pray and we'll just work our way through those first seven verses and we'll pick up where we left off next week. Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Four. The word of the Lord is upright. And all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come before You and we want to have a heart filled with praise to You this morning because that is what we are summoned to do through Your Word this morning. And so I pray that this would be the song of our heart, that our minds would come away filled with a knowledge of You, that our hearts would be thrilled at who You are, And then our mouths would speak forth the praises that are worthy of your holy character. And so, Lord, bring forth praise in our hearts. Help us to go deep in our understanding of you so that we might rise high in our praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Bishop William Laud was an evil little man. He was the henchman of Charles I in England. This is after the Protestant Reformation in England. And one of the unique things about the Protestant Reformation is most uh, historians, church historians would say it wasn't quite a full and complete Reformation. There was still lots of hangovers of Roman Catholicism in the Church of England. And this is why the English Puritans wanted to purify and purge those kind of Roman Catholic hangovers out of the Church of England. Well, this set up a kind of showdown between the English Puritans and Bishop Laud. Bishop Laud was gruesome in his torture techniques of the English Puritans. He would have their ears cut off and other kinds of torturous mutilation. Well, eventually, the, uh, the Parliament shifted tides and the English Puritans would gain control of Parliament and William Bishop Laud would become shorter than he already was by having his head taken off. Well, in this... Uh, This is kind of gruesome. But they had this statement, Big praise to God, or great praise to God, little laud to the devil. (laughs) It's Puritan humor. I knew you wouldn't wouldn't appreciate it. (laughs) Well, this morning we hope to give big 
praise to God as we read through this psalm, as we walk our way, because this is what it summons us to, is great praise to a great God. And hopefully you were able to see just by the reading of Scripture, those first three verses of Psalm 33 are are a call and a summons to praise. And then in verse 4 through verse 7, notice the first word of verse 4 begins with four. And so it's, it's very simple. We're going to look at four compelling reasons to robustly praise God this morning. And this is very important, this connection of praise and theology. I think this is one of the tragic divorces uh, that, that we often see in our different church traditions. Sometimes us Reformed folks, we're good at the theology, but not so good in boisterous praise to God. And our charismatic friends are sometimes good at the praise, but it's often uh, empty sentimentalism because it's not filled with a robust knowledge of God. Well, the reality is is that the Bible would not have us to divorce those two things, that our theology should raise our hearts high in doxology. And that's what we see throughout the Psalms. We saw it when Dale preached on Psalm 150, and we're going to see it again in this Psalm. We need to remember who we are praising. In fact, I want to read to you this quote from a young 20-year-old man. He was a young, budding preacher. He says, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom He calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is, the sub, it is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass, we can grapple with, we can feel a kind of self-content and go on our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise! But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depths, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, it is, a sub, it is to that subject that I invite you. Those are the words of Chucky Spurgeon at age 20. I don't know what you were thinking about at age 20 or writing about, but that's not what I was thinking or writing about. But it's a summons for us to think deeply about God. But let's look first of all at this call to praise. Let's begin in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Sing for joy in Yahweh, all you righteous ones. God, through the psalmist, is commanding the righteous ones to sing, and to sing, notice, for joy. To sing for joy. God is calling the saints, His people, to sing with gladness, with smiles on their face. Now, of course, there is a a kind of tension in the Bible as we ponder God as the great and awesome God should strike fear and awe and wonder in our hearts. In fact, He's going to call us to fear the Lord in in verse 8 and following. 
But also, there is this call for joy. A call for joyful singing to praise God with our voices. The voice, the human voice, is the most glorious musical instrument there is. It is quite amazing. The ability to to hit the highs and lows and to reverberate the, the air flowing past our vocal cords. Now, some of us have better voices than others, but all are called to sing for joy in Yahweh. In notice that Lord all capitals. This is the covenant God of Israel. And then notice, he tells us why we should do this. Because notice he says, praise is becoming to the upright. Or this is the idea, praise is fitting. It is proper. It is right. It is appropriate for God's people to speak highly of their great God. It is proper. Psalm 147 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Just as it's appropriate for a fish to swim, for a bird to fly, it is appropriate for God's people to praise their God. It should be the outflow of our hearts and lives. To speak well of. To speak of who He is. His excellencies. All of His characteristics. And to speak of those with joy in our heart. This is not something that comes natural. Children aren't born singing praises to the Lord. Each of us is born with a disposition to worship that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. We are turned in on ourselves. We love ourselves. We speak highly of ourselves. We want the rest of the world to obey ourselves. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of the natural man or the man who has not been born again or regenerated by the Spirit of God, he says in Romans 8, 7, and 8, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Natural man, man in his natural state does not praise God, does not speak well of God. Mankind often rails against the God of the Bible. He seems too restrictive. He has too many rules. He seems violent. But for those who have eyes to see, they will also have lips to praise. In fact, when Paul, earlier on in Romans, when he, when he describes the state of man, irreligious man, without the revelation of God, in Romans chapter 1, uh, man in his response to God, in Romans 1.18, it says, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which they knew about God..." They did not believe, right? 
In their hearts, they became hardened. And in 121, it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and with their, in their foolish heart was darkened. The story of man is not to give thanks to God, to not praise God. Even though man is utterly dependent upon God and every good gift comes from God, but it is proper, it is fitting for God's people to praise Him. It's why you were created. It's why you were redeemed. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. God, in His infinitely eternal wise plan of salvation, He chose you that you would be brought into His family by the blood of Jesus and that this would all be to the praise of His glory. And so you should sing with joy. Sing with joy. To praise Him with mouth, but not only with mouth, with music. Notice verse 2 and 3. Give thanks to the Lord with lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully. And here it is again with a shout of joy. God calls... His people to bring out the instruments. Bring out all the different instruments and use these instruments as mechanisms to sound forth praise to our great God. And then notice he says, sing to Him a new song. This is probably speaking of the ideas as, for instance, you see in the book of Exodus, after God delivers the the Hebrews out of Egypt, all of a sudden, what do we see? We see a song. Exodus 15, the song of Moses. Uh, We see this throughout. uh, We see it in Judges, I think it's chapter 4 or 5. After God delivered the Israelites uh, 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 from the bondage of their neighboring pagan neighbors, all of a sudden there's a song of Deborah. It is characteristic of God's people as God flexes His mighty redeeming muscles and delivers them and saves them for His people to sing then a new song about the the grandness of His saving acts. And so this this idea here even creeps up again in the book of Revelation when it says in Revelation 5.9 and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for for God with with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In fact we even sang it this morning with that William Cooper hymn. When this Poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Then we'll sing what a nobler, sweeter song will sing His power to save. A new song. We're called to sing of God's great redemption. And then notice the last part of verse 3. Play skillfully with the shout of joy. In other words, God 
wants our best. Some of us are more skillful than others at musical instruments. But there's nothing wrong and it's proper to to want to use those instruments, whether it's our vocal cords or whether it's a guitar, whether it's a drum or whether it's a harp or a lyre or whatever the instrument, to use it skillfully as best as we can with all of our might to praise the Lord. And certainly there would be application for whatever gifts and skills the Lord has given us in the different professions and careers that God has placed you to use those skills as an instrument to praise the Lord. To use them with all your might to seek to improve upon those skills. To reflect the glory of God. Play skillfully. Now, it is true that we do live in an entertainment culture. And sometimes there's a very fine line between entertainment and praise. But really, it's, it's ultimately a matter of the heart motivation. Is my motive to lead and be with God's people in singing praises to Him or am I trying to show myself great? It also takes place even in the act of preaching. I love the title of John Piper's latest book on preaching. It's called Expository Exaltation. He, he argues the case for preaching as an act of worship and praise to God. A.W. Tozer wrote many years ago that he had to decide whether he was going to be a clown or a prophet. He knew he couldn't be both. So, we see this summons, this call to sing for joy, to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Him, to sing to Him a new song, to play skillfully. And all of this, notice, it is to the Lord. And so now the psalmist transitions in verse 4. Again, the very first word of verse 4 is for. This is the reason. You have robust reasons to praise this God. And so we are going to look for the rest of our morning at four compelling reasons to boisterously praise God. The first is the faithfulness of God. Verse 4, For the word of the Lord, Yahweh, is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. This great God who is, is a God who speaks. And everything He says is true. Everything He says is reliable. Every promise that He makes, He will be faithful to keep. Psalm 12 verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on earth, refined seven times. The words of God are pure. They are without air. There is nothing in His words that will lead us astray. There is nothing in His words that, that will give us false hope or false promises. There is nothing that will disappoint us. And this is a big deal. 
Because we live in a world that is very uncertain. We live in a world with broken promises. We live in a world where contracts seem almost meaningless. His promises are more certain. More certain than savings accounts, stock markets, retirement plans, Bitcoin, even precious metals. More certain than all of those things. God is always faithful to His Word. Can you imagine if God's Word was mostly upright? But not entirely upright? You know, when people tell you the truth 80% of the time, they're not trustworthy. Even if they tell you the truth 95% of the time, you still don't trust them. That 5%, you say, hmm... Because I never know when that 5% is going to pop up and I can't trust what they say. The last part of verse 4, and all of His work is done in faithfulness. The Word of God and His promises are so certain. Everything He does is with faithfulness, with integrity. And this is a big deal for Christians who may be sitting here this morning somewhat disillusioned. Disillusioned with God. Maybe even disillusioned with His promises because perhaps you have been told that God promises you something He hasn't promised. You think of the so much of the prosperity movement that tells people that God promises them healing. God promises them health. God promises them, them, them fiscal prosperity. Well, a person who bites down on that false promise and holds on to it thinks that when those things don't come about, God is not faithful. Or maybe, maybe a little bit closer to home, somebody told you that uh, Proverbs 22.6 is a promise. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I don't have time to unpack what that verse really means, but it, it is a proverb. The Proverbs often give us truisms that give us principles of life that don't give us the full Pie. They give us a slice of the pie, not the full pie. And all the, the rules are laid down in Proverbs and the exceptions are written in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so it is not a promise that guarantees the salvation of each and every one of your children if you seek to raise them up in the Lord. But again, if you've bitten down on that promise thinking that the salvation of your children is guaranteed, there's some kind of formula. I wish there was a formula. Believe me, I would make billions of dollars selling that formula to Christian parents. I, I would sell everything I own, everything I have, if I could just guarantee the salvation of my children. But I can't. I can do what I'm supposed to do. 
And so you may be sitting here this morning disillusioned by the promises of God, but, but may it be that you're claiming promises that God has not promised? You better make sure. As one person has said, charismatics are often claiming promises God hasn't made and us Reformed folks are often not claiming promises God has made. And so you may be in the second category like most of us and uh, maybe you're not disillusioned banking on promises God hasn't made but, but maybe you're just not sucking the milk of those promises God has made. And you're a, you're a despairing Christian. Your, your hope is meager. Your hope is weak. You, you don't live with confidence in this world and joy in this world because you're not laying hold of those promises God has given. That He is faithful in each and every one of those. Maybe every time you, you sin... You, you snap at your wife, you snap at a co-worker, a friend, you snap at your children, you think, well, not a Christian. There it is. I'm reprobate. <laughs> and you just need to, you need to take a promise like Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you lay hold of that, Jesus, I'm in You. I trust that Jesus is my Savior. And I know I screwed up again. And I need to confess it to my wife. I need to confess it to my children. I need to confess it to my friend. But I know that in Christ, He paid the price for that. And I'm not going to be paralyzed by the accusations of the evil one. I lay hold of the promise of God. Or in the midst of trial and difficulty... Have you forgotten the promise of Romans 8.28? That He causes all things, including trial and difficulty, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And you just need to drink the milk of that promise for the nourishment of your own soul and to be able to have joy and confidence in the midst of this. Whatever God has in store for me, I can be certain He is for me. He's working this for my good. As difficult and as hard and as tragic as it might be. And you lay hold of that promise. And then, guess what? Your heart will be filled with praise. Praise to Him. As you look not merely at your own circumstances, but you look at your circumstance through the lens of the character of God and His faithful promises. I remember one day I was sitting... Pastor Chris's back office, and I looked behind me, and there was vandalism behind me. There was a window that had the word God written on it. <laughs> and I had to ask, Chris, what, what's that all about? And evidently, he uses it as an illustration in his pastoral counseling that you need to see the world through the lens of God, look through the window. Through God. Friends, if, if we do that, then our hearts are going to be filled with praise. We're going to have joy, confidence in this life. But if we don't, then we'll be despairing, disillusioned, lack of joy. But not only the faithfulness of God, notice in verse 5, the righteousness of God. 
He loves righteousness and justice. Righteousness simply means doing the right thing. Justice is seeking a righteous outcome. God loves these things because they are part of who He is. They are reflections of His glorious character. Psalm 97 verse 2 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. I know sometimes when we hear the phrase social justice, we can have an allergic reaction. And, and you should because it, it comes out of all kinds of Marxist ideologies. But that shouldn't cause us as Christians because there's perversions of justice out there that shouldn't cause us to not desire genuine justice and righteousness in this world. And as we see injustices, as we see the weak being oppressed, as we read of the slaughter of millions of unborn children in this country and across the world, as we hear of people who steal from others or commit murder, that our hearts shouldn't cry out for justice, for God to act. In fact, we see that even in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, I think it's chapter 6, in verse 10, as the, the martyrs, those who have shed their blood and they're in heaven, they're crying out for justice. They're saying, How long, O Lord, till You avenge our blood? Their heart cry is for justice, for God in heaven to act and to bring His hammer of justice down upon those who unlawfully and wickedly took their lives. God is a God of justice. He is a God of perfect righteousness and justice. I believe we have one of the best justice systems on planet earth. But yet it's flawed. Why? Because humans are involved in it. We have laws about due process and innocence until proven guilty. We have juries of peers. All of this so that there's not miscarriages of justice. But there still are, aren't there? In fact, every once in a while you read in the news, it's getting more and more uncommon, but you'll read in the news about somebody who was a Nazi war criminal being brought to trial, and here they are in their 90s, you know, coming to trial in a walker, barely able to move, and, and, and your heart just thinks, what? I mean, I'm glad they're still doing something, but here's this guy who's lived his life after having had a hand in the execution of thousands of people and he's going to live one year of a sentence. And the heart cries for justice. But our hearts should not only cry for justice, but also for righteousness. Because this is the character of God. God is a righteous God. 
He never sins. There, and this is why it's so blasphemous to think that we could ever or should ever be angry with God. Because anger by its very definition says that's not right. Anger is the impulse of the heart that is a moral judgment against some perceived injustice, some perceived wrong. We are never to be angry at God because there is no wrongdoing with God. God is perfectly righteous. He only does righteousness. And our lives should desire to imitate that righteousness. Jonathan Edwards in his book Religious Affection says that one of the surest signs that a person is a genuine believer is a holy relish for righteousness. It's a very Edwardsian phrase. A holy relish for righteousness. A holy delight in righteousness. Where you want to do that which is right. We ought to praise God because He's righteous. It is a funny thing about righteousness and justice. We, we always want God's justice for other people, but not for ourselves, right? You know, we want to defund the police for others, but have our own police force. We want hell for others, but not for ourselves. God is a God of righteousness and justice. He's a God of faithfulness. But thirdly, He's also a God of loyal love. Notice the second part of verse 5. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. The earth is full. It's full. And, and, And the psalmist here is writing... Post-Genesis 3. I don't know if you get your Bible chronology. Somebody quizzed me about Bible chronology this morning and I think I flopped it. But Psalm 33 is after Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? The fall of man. In other words, even in the midst of a fallen world, the earth is filled with the loving kindness of Yahweh. What is the loving kindness? It's kind of like a compound word, love and kindness. But, but the, the, the word that lies behind this, the Hebrew word is a beautiful word, the word chesed. And you have to say it with that in the back of your mouth. Chesed, like you're coughing. Chesed, God's loyal, faithful love. Some of your translations may say steadfast love. It's God's love that is backed by promise. And I love it because it's, it's a very robust word that, that highlights God's love not as a mere ushy-gushy sentimentality, not a mere kind of feel-good sentimentality, but it's backed by promise. It's the kind of love that is illustrated by God in the marriage covenant. And, and, and isn't that appropriate? Because the marriage covenant, the marriage promise... Yes, there's ooey-gooeyness, but it's steeled by promise, till death do I part. I'm in it for the finish, honey. You can't get rid of me. It's steeled by promise and faithfulness. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a combination of faithfulness, but also dripping with kindness and goodness. 
God's, it says the earth is full of it. We see God's love, His kindness, His faithful love spilled out over all of His creation. Psalm 63 verse 3, we saw this some weeks ago. David writes, Because your chesed, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's what we're talking about here in Psalm 33. This is the the impulse of the imperative is for us to praise Him. And as our minds are marinated upon this loyal love of God, we can't help but praise Him. God, You are so kind, You are so loving, You are so faithful. God's love is unique. It's different than man's love. It was... Martin Luther, even before he wrote those 95 theses, I think it's in the Heidelberg Disputation, I can't remember, one of his disputations, one of his debates, he says, the love of God does not find, but creates what is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through what is pleasing to it. If I put you on the spot and ask the husband, why do you love your wife? No doubt that husband would begin to speak of all the different virtues of his spouse. That's human love, right? Love comes into being after what is pleasing to it. But God's love is different because it does not come into being, it does not find what is pleasing to it and says, "Ah, that's a lovely fellow, I'm going to love them. That's a, that's a cute person. I'm going to love them. That's a humble person. I'm, no, it does not find, but it creates that which is pleasing to Him. This is how God's love works. He chooses to set His love upon His people and He begins to mold and create and shape that which is pleasing to, to Him. He's not looking and saying, well looking at you and I don't really love you anymore because you're a big screw up. No. He says, yeah, you're a screw up. But I love you and I'm going to help you not to be a screw up. (laughs) God's love towards the unlovable. God's love towards the unworthy. This is illustrated wonderfully in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, right? That God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that His love is not based upon our character because we're sinners, but His love is based upon His own holy, loving character. And this again, friends, is what should undergird our praise and give us confidence and certainty in this fallen world that that we we don't have to live with joy according to how well we performed for God today. So that, well, I didn't do so good, so, you know, it's the daisy thing with God. He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. No. Because His love is not based upon you. It's based upon His own holy character. 
Friend, have you grown cold to the love of God? Have you become indifferent to His love towards you? When was the last time you shed tears over the incarnation and crucifixion of the love of God in Christ? Maybe you're going through a difficult trial right now. You need to know that that trial comes from the hand of a loving Father in heaven. He's not against you. He's for you. So praise Him. Praise Him because of His faithfulness. Praise Him because of His righteousness. Praise Him because of His loyal love. Fourth, praise Him because of His creative power. Notice verse 6 and 7. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their starry host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Of course, this harkens back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then what? And God said, let there be light. And boom, there was light. He spoke it. That is amazing. He can speak things into existence. He says it and it happens immediately without hesitation. And Job says the sons of God, the angels, delight at the creation. God's power by His Word, the heavens are made. And and again, we talked about some of the statistics of the heavens last week, the universes and, and all their hosts, all the stars, this amazing vast creation and God speaks it into existence and it immediately comes into existence, certainly demonstrating the immensity of His power. Power of the likes that we can't even comprehend because of our our only experience with power is in the created world. Well, this is that power which lies behind the most powerful forces in all of creation. It is God Himself. But then He also speaks not only of the heavens, but He also speaks of In verse 7, the waters. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap and lays up the deeps in storehouses. I mean, isn't it an amazing thing? These great bodies of water that God gives to us. In fact, it was only, you know, several hundreds of years ago that humans could even cross those vast bodies of waters we call oceans. It's an amazing thing. And, and think about it, that, that we don't have water just kind of spread all over the earth like we were living in water world or something like that. But, but we, can, we can dwell on dry ground. 
And we can go to the lake if we want to, when we want to. Or go to the ocean. But then notice it, he, he gathers up. Notice it also says here in, in verse 7 that he lays up the deeps in storehouses. In other words, he, he takes the water and puts it up. I mean, isn't that an amazing thing? Again, we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the atmosphere and this amazing blanket that God gives us to bring down rain. It's a kind of natural irrigation system so that vegetation can grow, so that animals can eat, so that we can eat. And all this I have to connect with the previous verse that it says the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. One of God's promises that He made was that He would not destroy the earth again through water. And the whole hydrological system is part of God's kindness towards His creation. So think about that the next time you pick that zucchini from the garden. That cherry tomato. That God created this amazing hydrological system to water your plants. Yeah, you may have to get out there with the hose, but not this last week. (laughs) You didn't have to water anything this last week. But this is God's infinite wisdom and power put on display in the creation. It is an amazing thing. And again, sometimes we just need to kind of unplug from our various digital devices, take a walk in the park. Just look around you at the wonder of God's power in creation so that your heart springs forth with praise. When you're eating lunch this afternoon, or maybe call it dinner. I don't know why food after church is always thought of as dinner, but... That should be an opportunity for your heart to burst forth with praise. That God gives you this food. It's part of His creation. I mean, God, God could have made it so we have a little pouch in our side and anytime we need nutrition, we just shove some stuff down there. But He gives us all these different tastes and textures and sweets and sours and savories and all these different bass array and He gave us these taste buds so then when it hits our mouth it signals certain things that are in communication with our brain and ah, that's delicious. And all that, my friend, is God's power and kindness blended together so that your heart would praise Him. Yes, can we make idols even out of food? Of course. And that's again where it's a matter of heart motives. Heart motives. We don't want to commune with our cheeseburger. We want it to be the springboard for praise to this great God. So friend, is your heart filled with praise to this great God? And in the unfolding of God's revelation, we talked about a new song at the beginning. A new song of redemption. 
Because God progressively reveals Himself throughout the Scripture. And as Hebrews 1 says, long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers in the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. And so that it shouldn't be a shocker that when we look across on the horizon to Golgotha, that we would see the character of God on display. That we would see indeed the faithfulness of God put on display in the cross. And indeed it is true as we see Jesus go to the cross and die on behalf of sinners, we're reminded that this is the culmination of a plan that God had promised the hundreds, thousands of years prior, beginning with that promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The promises of Isaiah 53 that he would be, that we all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Uttered, written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And this plan comes to fruition at the cross where we see the faithfulness of God on display. He said He would send a Redeemer and indeed He did. We see the righteousness of God put on display. I mean, how is it that God could righteously forgive criminals Cosmic criminals, treasonous criminals like you and I who've defied His commands, who've defied His law, who've thumbed our nose up at the Almighty. How could He justly bring us into His family and bring us into His heaven? Well, He tells us in Romans chapter 3, God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation through His blood. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. In other words, He did it through the cross. Somebody else had to pay your death sentence. Somebody else had to take the hell that you deserve. And that's what Jesus did. And the cross, so that the greatest display of the righteousness and justice of God was when Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth and the blackness of darkness covered the earth and He cried out those words, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And all the fury of hell was born upon the back of Jesus. That, my friends, is the greatest display of the justice of God and should fill your heart with praise. But what about the love of God? The loyal love of God? You know that's displayed at the cross. Because if we were to ask the question, how loving is God? To what extent would He extend His kindness towards His own people and even towards humanity with a free offer of the Gospel? Was the early church writer said, the cross is the pulpit of God's love. As I quoted earlier, Romans 5.8, for God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God 
so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Some of you are parents. Some of you have a son or maybe multiple sons. Think of your love towards your children to sacrifice your own child for the good of others. Imagine if I got for Christmas a box of chocolates from somebody that's not really chocolates I like. And then Valentine's Day comes and I hand it to my wife. Not, not feeling the love. Not much of a sacrifice there, huh, Matt? But God gave His own Son. But what about the power of God? The power of God put on display and God putting His foot on the throat of death and Jesus rising from the dead. What an amazing God. An amazing God who it is fitting for us to praise Him because of His faithfulness, His righteousness, His love, and His power. Friend, if you have not yet trusted in this Christ and this Gospel, and you do not yet know this God, your heart is not yet filled with praise, turn to Him. He will forgive you. He's that kind. And you can be reconciled to Him. Trust in Christ alone to pay the price for your sin and turn to Him. Instead of being an idolater, become a praise, one who praises Him. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You and praise You for the God that You are. Indeed, it is fitting that we praise You. Oh Lord, we get excited about so many silly things, trivialities. But Lord, help our hearts to be filled with that theme that is most important. You. That study that is most important. You. Give us lives that sing for joy. In Jesus' name, amen.